From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Head injuries or traumatic brain injuries can happen in a number of ways, and today we're going to learn all about diagnosis and treatment from Dr. Bill Palo. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine and of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. He's also the residency program director of emergency medicine. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Palo. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the definition of traumatic brain injury. Is it the same thing as head injury? Mostly, yes. I mean, a head injury is anything that'll bring you to an emergency department after being struck in the head. So that can be anything from falling down and striking your head in the shower to a football player who sustains a forceful injury to their head. Um, We kind of differentiate that from traumatic brain injury. A head injury can lead to a traumatic brain injury, but a traumatic brain injury generally is going to be something that happens to the brain organic substance itself. So that can be anything from bleeding into the brain, um, something minor like concussion, um, but these will have clinical manifestations that we'll find when we see the patient and the patient comes into the emergency department. So traumatic brain injury or TBI um, maybe is a more severe head injury? Yeah, you can think of it that way. A, a traumatic brain injury is going to be when there's actual changes to the brain substance, be it something that we can see on a CAT scan, like bleeding into the brain, or something that we can only manifest clinically, like a concussion, where you might have something like post-concussive syndrome, where you can have vertigo or feeling like you're spinning, personality changes, sleep-wake disturbances, uh, nausea, vomiting, and migraines, things like that, a constellation of symptoms that that suggests that there's an injury to the brain that we might not be able to see on a CAT scan or an MRI. All right. And then not to confuse things more, but concussion is a brain injury, isn't it? Or Concussion is a brain injury. As far as we can tell, concussion is a brain injury, and it's probably damage to the neurons of the brain. But we can't really see it right now with most of the conventional things that we use on a clinical level. We can't see it with a CAT scan. We can't see it with an MRI. There's some evidence at autopsy studies that there's changes to the brain that happen from concussion and certainly chronic concussions. So what we do, since we can't see it, we know that there's a constellation of symptoms that you'll have, kind of what I talked about before, which we call post-concussive syndrome that you'll manifest with should you come to the emergency department with a concussion. So it's really a clinical diagnosis. You say you were hit in the head and you manifest these symptoms, we'll tell you that's a concussion because we don't really have a way of seeing it, but we know it's damage to the brain. We just can't see it. So we just look for how you act and how you respond okay. after the head injury. Okay. Now, how often is it that you see it working in the emergency department, uh, someone that comes in with some type of head injury? Is uh, it a common thing? Yeah, it's pretty common. Um, so it's, uh, it's, year-round with seasonal variations. So what I mean by that is uh, in here in central New York, we have a football season that occurs. So we see a lot of head injuries during football season. Uh, We see it all the time in individuals who are workers, people who fall off of things. And we see it with motor vehicle accidents year-round. So it's a year-round thing, but we see little spikes in in visits to the emergency department based upon what people are doing. So soccer season, football season, whatnot, we see those head injuries. And then off season in the winter, uh, we're going to see a lot of head injuries from things like sports and uh, ATVs and snowmobiles. Slipping on the ice. Slipping on the ice. Yeah. Shoveling snow or going on your roof to get off some snow and then falling off your roof. So lots of different reasons to come, but it's, it's year round and we do see a lot of head injuries. Plus we have a lot of highway systems in central New York and we'll see head injuries from motor vehicle collisions. Uh, and the injuries that you described, it seems like that would affect different age ranges. That's so this true. could be children all the way up to That's seniors. That's true. Or yeah. There's really no thing that prevents you from head injuries. There's really nothing in terms of 
risk stratification that will say you're less likely to have it. There's just more likely to have it than others. So participation in sports, prone to falls in the elderly, um, very young individuals who um, are around stairs or around things that they can fall off of like decks. So we see it in all age groups. Um, certainly some people are more predisposed than others, but there's very little that prevents you from getting it other than some preventative measures if you're, if you're participating in sports or riding bicycles and things of that nature. Now, you mentioned a, a lot of the different common causes of traumatic brain injury. Um, a, a few years ago, I remember an actress that died after she she was standing and she slipped and fell and hit her head yeah. um, and died from it. So I don't know. I wouldn't think that someone who just fell from standing could have such a severe injury. And then you see others mm-hmm. that... Right. Yeah, most young people who fall from standing won't have severe injury. It can happen. Anything can happen. Um, but most people that have a fall from stand that have a severe injury generally are older or what we consider an elderly population. There are other things that will risk will uh, elevate your risk with that too. If you're on a blood thinner, you take aspirin or Coumadin or any of the new anticoagulant, uh, anticoagulants like Eliquis and you fall and even sustain what most people would consider a minor head injury um, from a fall from standing and bumping your head, you're much more likely to have a bad outcome because of the anticoagulants that you take and much more prone to bleeding because you're on something that thins out your blood as it were. So most young people and healthy people fall from standing won't be much. Skiing accidents, things like that, we'll see with a a force, Um, but it can happen. what cap? What I think the story that you're referring to, um, somebody had what's called an epidural hematoma. Um, so there's a blood vessel. There's lots of blood vessels in your brain, obviously, but there's some big arteries that are on the sides of your brain. Um, and if you hit those sides of your head, and we get a little bit more concerned about the side of your head, um, you can start bleeding out of an artery and form this hematoma or collection of blood. Um, And we call it an epidural hematoma because that particular area, it's just the space it's in. Epidural means outside of the dura and hematoma means collection of blood. Now what happens with those people that we worry about is they hit their head and they may pass out and then they have what we call a lucent period where they're back to normal, everything seems to be okay. And then they have almost like a second passing out again or second loss of consciousness. So that happened with the, I forgot the name of the actress who was in a skiing accident. Natasha Richardson. Yes, that's okay. that's exactly that's... what she succumbed to. So she had that period where she was awake and feeling better and then had it been again. But mostly we're going to see that in high impact injuries, uh, what we call temporal bone, that's the area above the ear injuries, um, or in individuals who are anticoagulated. Uh, but the other thing is going to be high velocity impact. So motor vehicle collisions, the skiing accident certainly is a high velocity impact. Um, but risky people from fall from standing are generally going to be older people that fall from standing or something that gives them a risk. When you talk about a trauma, the uh, car accident or something like that, if you suffer head trauma, does does your skull fracture? Does the bone itself break? So it can. Um, it certainly can. We do see associated skull fractures with traumatic brain injury. Um, we kind of classify them based upon where they are. So uh, the back of your head being the occipital area, the front of your head, your frontal bone, and the temporal area. All these different areas have different risk factors, and the confirmation of the fracture matters too. So we talk about depressed skull fractures. That'd be like if you got hit in the head with a baseball and it pushed that fracture fragment towards your brain some. Non-depressed skull fractures, which uh, are 
generally line up. They're just kind of broken as opposed to moved. Um, so yeah, we can see that. And then associated with that, because your skull is contiguous, we see um, sinus fractures in the front. We can see facial fractures that go along with it, fractures into the orbital bone, fractures into the nose or the sinuses. So they all give different risk factors depending upon where you got hit and how you got hit. Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Bill Palo. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine, and we're discussing head injuries. Um, I wanted to ask you about the guidelines for pre-hospital management of TBI, the things paramedics and EMTs are supposed to do for patients who have suspected head injuries. So there's a couple of things that we know. Um, we know that head injured brains bleeding into your brain, what have you, the area around that area really needs oxygen to kind of survive. Um, and what it's especially vulnerable to, since that area around it has these vulnerable cells, um, is it does not like low oxygen levels. So one thing to do is maintain normal oxygen levels. We don't need to maintain super normal oxygen levels, but we want to attain normal oxygen levels. The second thing that the brain does not like, for the same reason you can think of it as blood supply to these neurons that are very vulnerable. They want to get oxygen, and to get oxygen there, they want blood flow. So how do you do that is you maintain normal blood pressures. Um, what you're always concerned about is too low a blood pressure. So you wanna maintain normal blood pressure. There's a lot of controversy around hypertension, too much blood pressure, and where you manage that and what number you should shoot for if you need to lower it at all and whether or not you should lower it at all. Uh, but leaving that aside, what we definitely know is that low blood pressure is bad. And then finally, what we don't want to do is constrict blood vessels. So we don't want the blood vessels to constrict so they don't um, supply the blood flow that we're looking for. So that has to do a lot with how you breathe and your acid base status. So we want to make sure that's kind of normal as well. So those things especially. And then one really minor intervention that makes a big difference. If you're bleeding into your brain, you get elevated pressures in your brain. And it sounds so simple, but actually instead of laying people flat on their backs, having them so that they can sit up a little bit, what we call elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees, actually reduces the amount of pressure going to your brain and might actually help them as well. So we look for those things. Mostly what we're doing is getting them to good uh, neurological centers like SUNY Upstate and making sure that they're safe beforehand and we're making sure that we're making those parameters as normal as possible. So we wanna maintain a normal blood pressure, don't want it to be low. We wanna maintain a normal oxygen, we don't want it to be low. We wanna maintain a normal acid base status and we like to elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees. So are those things that people can do while they're waiting for the ambulance? Um, uh, just to make sure the person's breathing? They can, yeah, okay. yeah. That's, I would say that first aid in that particular case is the most important thing for most bystanders and alerting the 911 system as soon as possible. So the basic things that we would teach you in a CPR course, uh, check for breathing, check for pulse, um, identify somebody who can call 911 and then stay with them um, would be the most important things for a bystander to do. We don't like bystanders who don't know about uh, potential concomitant spine fractures to do things like elevate people until we've had a chance until or a professional's okay. had a chance to take a look at them. That makes sense. Well, not every head injury needs to go to the emergency department though, right? So how Correct. do you determine if you need to go to the hospital? That's a good question. Um, I think one thing that you can always say is if you have any of the risky things we talked about, you're over 65, you're on blood thinners, um, you're under the age of two, under the age of one, um, you know, those types of things I think are reasonable to be checked out by a healthcare provider. If you're a healthy individual um, 
and you've got none of the risk factors we talked about. You're not on anything that thins out your blood. You don't have a bleeding disorder. You don't have hemophilia or whatnot. Um, and you've sustained what we call a minor head injury. Um, so you were struck in the head. Maybe you didn't have any loss of consciousness. You weren't nauseous or vomiting when you were done. Um, you don't have any amnesia to the event. Then you might be able to get away without coming to the emergency department and being evaluated. Um, some of these things we consider risk factors that I talked about, loss of consciousness, vomiting, and whatnot. Independently, they don't predict that much, but the more of those things that you add up, you lost consciousness and you're nauseous, you lost consciousness and you're nauseous and you don't remember it, that starts to be more and more risky. Um, so certainly you're struck in the head, you feel okay, you maybe have a minor headache or a, a little lump, I'm, we're not as concerned about you. But that said, the emergency department, I don't expect a lot of lay people to be physicians. So if you have any concern whatsoever, we're open 24 seven for us to evaluate you and tell you everything's okay or tell you something more needs to be done. That's what we do all the time. And head injuries tend to, I mean, they can be scary for they certainly a, a can. parent looking at their child bleeding or what. Oh, know, they so. certainly can. So walk me through, if you will, um, when a person arrives at the emergency department um, with a suspected head injury, what sorts of tests or what sorts of treatments would they maybe face? Sure. So one of the things that I think it's important for people to note is that when we see you, the first thing that we do is we use clinical guidelines to determine whether or not you have a severe head injury and whether or not we need to do something like do a CAT scan. So for head injuries, we don't really do MRIs, we do CAT scans. And that's important for the public to understand that CAT scans come with a lot of radiation. So if they didn't, we could just willy-nilly CAT scan everybody that walked into the emergency department and have no concern and find out everybody who's got a severe injury. But that's not the reality, um, and it does come with radiation, and we worry about that, especially in the younger individuals and kids that fall and kids that hit their head because they have a lot more time to manifest that. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to do some clinical risk assessments. And that may mean we tell you everything looks fine fine, just go home. And it's not because we're not doing anything. It's because we've used a risk assessment tool to say you don't meet this risk. We have different risk assessment tools in kids, and we have different risk assessment tools in adults. So if we do, however, find that you do meet a moderate risk, then there's a branch point. We might say, what we're going to do now is we're going to bore you and make you sit in this emergency apartment for the next six hours. And if everything clears up and you don't feel any worse, we're not going to do anything. So that's kind of a conservative thing because you're on the cusp. Maybe you need a CAT scan, but you probably don't. So what we're going to do is we're going to watch you. And if anything changes, we're going to CAT scan you. So that's kind of a moderate risk. And then if we think you're high risk, we're just going to go ahead and probably do a CAT scan. Um, and we'll do a CAT scan either of your head or of your face or of your neck or all three, depending upon what kind of head injury you sustained. And then depending on what that shows determines what more has to be done. Correct. Correct. Whether or not we're calling somebody like a neurosurgeon to see you, or we're calling a neurologist potentially to see you, or we're just saying, we, we've found this and it means that, and therefore we're going to observe you again. And, or we found a little bit of bleeding into your head. Uh, it doesn't look like a big deal, but we're going to need to repeat a CAT scan in six hours to see whether or not there's stability or not. Let me ask you, since you um, are in charge of training the residents, are there, are there things that you teach the residents to be on the lookout for um, in pe people that have traumatic brain injuries? Sure. Um, the, what we utilize are those clinical risk assessment tools. Um, and they're going to be anything from things like, were you amnestic to the event? Do you remember the event? Where is the head trauma? By way of example, in kids, 
we put a lot more weight into head trauma above the ears or the uh, hematoma collection of blood above the ears than we do in the front. The front, the frontal bones where a lot of kids and toddlers will hit their heads repeatedly, is much thicker than some of the other areas and less risky because of the blood vessel supply there. Mm. So we're going to look at where it is. We're going to feel, by way of example, if you have your six-month-old that came in and has a has a hematoma, we're going to feel the hematoma and see if we feel a fracture fragment. Um, in older individuals or in adults, we might look at things like what was the velocity? How high did you fall from? Was there something, was your passenger severely injured? Did your airbags deploy? Um, did you have to be pulled out of your vehicle? Did somebody have to come and cut the vehicle open to get you out of your vehicle? Did you fall from a height of greater than yourself? You know, are you six feet tall and you fell from over six feet? So those sorts of risk factors are going to kind of be what we're looking at. And then we're going to look at you and we're going to do kind of an assessment. Are you awake, alert, oriented, talking to me, acting normal? Or are you a little confused? Or are you even not acting yourself? We use that something called the GCS scale, kind of determining how you're acting and how you're globally awake and conscious. So we're using that constellation of things, plus our kind of our history of seeing people that look like you and putting you into those categories and saying, you fit this category, you fit that category. Sure. Neat. Well, very interesting. Thank you so much for talking about this with me. My guest has been emergency physician Bill Palo from Upstate University Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.